Romans chapter 1, please. Let's read in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated in the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by the, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Father God, that we can come together to study your word. We pray, Father, that you'd guide our time as we open up the word of God tonight, that we might exalt your holy name. I pray that, Lord, you'd give me wisdom from on high, that, Lord God, you would help me to um, know exactly what you would have me to say, and I would say it, Father God, according to your glory. I pray, Father God, that you'd just guide my, our time in your word tonight, that we might learn of you, that we might be blessed by you, we might leave this place singing your praise. Lord, bless our time now in your word. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Stretching all the way from the Cape York Peninsula in northern Queensland, running through the McPherson Ranges and the Lamington Plateau, down through the highlands of New South Wales and the Australian Alps near the New South Wales Victorian border, and finally bending westward. In Victoria, to terminate in the Grampians, we have the majestic mountain range known as the Great Dividing Range. And there are literally dozens of peaks on the mountain range. One, however, reaches skyward further than any other. It's Australia's highest peak, Mount Kosciuszko, rising 1,500 metres above sea level. If we were to draw a parallel between this mountain range and the Word of God, the 66 books of the scripture as a unit stand above every other writing known to man. The Bible is a literary range, towering above all the work, all other works. From Genesis to Revelation, it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. But in this great range of scriptures, some books stand out above others, not because they're more inspired than others, but because the Holy Spirit chose to concentrate more significant truths in these books. And in the minds of many, the book of Romans would be the tallest of them all, the Mount Kosciuszko, if you like, of the Bible. You know, the writing has so powerfully influenced the thinking of believers. Down through the ages, proved to be the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And this is the book that you and I are studying now. At the outset of the book of Romans, Paul presents his credentials to us in what is a very lengthy salutation in verses 1 through 7. And last week we saw, firstly, Paul tells us that he is a servant of Jesus Christ in verse 1. 
And secondly, today we see he is an apostle in verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated on the gospel, called to be an apostle. Now we can leave the italics out, the to be out of this, because they're not in the original. And really how it reads is called an apostle. Paul is an apostle. He wasn't called to be sometime in the future an apostle. He is at the time of writing the book of Romans an apostle. And the word simply means one who was sent by authority with a commission. It was applied in Paul's day to the representative of the emperor who'd gone forth to represent that emperor <coughs> with authority and with a commission. Something like a herald goes forth, you know, and uh, heralds the news of the king, stands there with the authority of the king, delivering a, a message from the king, uh, the commission. And Paul was one who was sent by authority with a commission to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Go with me to Romans chapter 11, please, and verse 13. Romans 11, 13. He says, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, one of the requirements for an apostle was that he was experienced seeing the risen Christ. And go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I hope you've got your Bibles tonight, because we're going to look at a few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2. Paul speaking again, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. And of course, in verse 1 there, it tells us that one of the qualification of apostles that they have to have seen the risen Lord and that's exactly what Paul did he saw the risen Lord go back to Acts chapter 9 please Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 <clears throat> and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughtered against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And, when the men, and, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, with his eyes, uh, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat or drink. Here on the road to Damascus... Paul sees the resurrected Lord. So he meets the qualification of an apostle of seeing the resurrected Lord. The second requirement 
of an apostle was that he must have a call directly from the Lord. And it was Christ who called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, staying in the book of Acts in chapter 9. Because in verse 15, we have the apostles' call. In verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, it says this, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was God's chosen vessel to go forth with the message of salvation to the Gentiles. And so Paul was an apostle qualified for the position. He'd seen the resurrected Lord. He'd been given a commission directly from God. And Paul never lost sight of the fact that he was a man who was given a vocation by Almighty God and a commission to go forth with that vocation. He was an apostle sent with authority, with a divine commission. And he realized he was working for God and not for himself. And it was this fact that drove Paul on and on in the ministry, no matter what the trial was that he faced. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, please. Uh, chapter 12, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I rather glory will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The Apostle Paul went through many trials, many difficulties, many uh, uh, shipwrecks and stonings and beatings and yet Paul continued on serving the Lord because he knew that he was called of God this was what he was commissioned to do he was the apostle of the Gentiles he was going to go forth and until God took him from this earth he was going to be faithfully in preaching the gospel message that God had called him to Paul as he preached Christ endured persecutions jailings whipping shipwrecks stonings you name it uh, no man has suffered like the Apostle Paul suffered, and yet he remained faithful to God in the ministry. Look what he testifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16. He says in verse 15, But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that I should be so done unto me, for it were, it were better for me to die than to have any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory, uh, nothing glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul's ministry was not just a matter of choice. This was not something about personal ambition. This was not the apostle seeking to be puffed up to somehow gain glory for himself. This was not something about uh, uh, the apostle Paul. It, wasn't, it was something that he was called to do, something that he had to do. The word necessity there in verse, nine, uh, verse uh, 16 means constraint. Paul says, I am constrained to preach the gospel. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For constraints, I'm constrained to do this. 
This is something I've been called to do in the word woe there carries the idea of compel. You know, Paul didn't just have the preacher's itch. You know, he saw others preaching and he thought, well, that's a good thing to do. It's a good money-making thing. This was something the Apostle Paul was convicted of God and he knew it was God's call upon his life. He was given a divine commission and he was going to do it to the glory of God. He was called to preach and he felt compelled to fulfill that call. You know, you and I may well not be called to be an apostle. But you and I, as individual believers, have a holy calling. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 says, Who hath saved us and hath called us with a holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given unto us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You and I have a holy calling. In fact, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, we're described this way. It says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. You and I are saints. You and I have a holy calling. You and I are the sons of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. You and I are his ambassadors. We are saints. And the truth of the matter is that while you and I are not apostles, you and I have a holy calling. We are saints. And you and I have indeed been sent forth by authority with a commission. And that commission is the great commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and lie with you always. You and I have been given a great commission. It was repeated in Acts chapter 1. We were told that ye should be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. You and I have been commissioned by, by Almighty God to go forth with the gospel. And while we may not be an apostle, you and I have a holy calling. And as saints, you and I have been commissioned by God to go forth with his authority to preach the gospel. And we just remember that we have a responsibility to serve him. Remember Acts chapter 2 and verse 10? You know, for by, if 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and of yourselves as the God, not of works lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You and I have been saved to serve. You and I have been saved and declared to be saints to go forth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been given a commission of God and we go forth by his authority to preach the word. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. For what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yet doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Be found in him, not in having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul here declares that as the apostle to the Gentiles, this servant of God, 
he declares that he is willing to suffer the loss of all things. He is willing that, uh, in order that he might serve Christ, he's willing to suffer all things for that cause. That's why Paul was willing to go through jailings and shipwrecks and stonings and everything else. That's why he could sing at midnight in, in the Philippian jail and, and uh, give praise unto God. That's why when he was chained to those Roman soldiers in Rome, he could testify of the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul was, was a man who had been given a divine commission and that commission drove him on and he was willing to suffer the loss of all things that he might win Christ, that he might indeed bring glory to God. And this ought to be our desire. You know, you and I may never be called upon to go through what Paul went through. You and I may never be stoned for the faith. You and I may never be beaten for the faith. You and I may never be imprisoned for the faith. You and I may never be shipwrecked for the faith. But you and I ought to be willing to say with Paul, I'll suffer the loss of all things for Christ. You see, each of us have a critical question to answer. What rights are we willing to sacrifice for the cause of Jesus? What are we willing to give up that we might serve him? What are we willing to sacrifice that we might serve the Lord? Somebody said, the more highly we think of the master whom we serve, the more honorable shall we deem his service. And the deeper our sense of obligation for his kindness and grace, the more ardent will be our delight in doing of his will and the more active and unremitting our zeal in the advancement of his glory. The truth is that unless we as believers and as Christian workers are controlled by conviction that you and I are under divine commission, our labors will be in vain. We're bound to fail in our service of Christ if we forget our divine calling. If you and I are not willing to be spent for Jesus Christ and to spend what's necessary energy to serve Christ, then you and I will fail in our calling. We have a responsibility to fulfill our divine commission to be witnesses for him. You see, while we may not be an apostle like the Apostle Paul, the sentiment and the testimony of Paul with regards to his passion for what God's called him to do, that, that passion to serve God, that willingness to sacrifice all things for the cause of Christ, ought to be the same sentiment that you and I as believers have, that you and I are seeking first his kingdom, that you and I are seeking first his will, that you and I are seeking first to do God's will. And that the thing that drives us day by day is a passion for God. And we never lose sight of our calling and our commission for the Lord. Paul was a servant. Paul was an apostle. And then thirdly, he was a preacher of the gospel. He said, separate him of the gospel of God, which he had promised to fall by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from 
the dead. He is a preacher of the gospel. When he was a Jewish rabbi, <coughs> excuse me, Paul was separated as a Pharisee for the laws and the traditions of the Jews. <coughs> and he was zealous for his service for God. You know, as a, as a, a, a Jewish uh, Pharisee, he was a zealot. He, he had a passion for what he was doing. And he went forth with great zeal to serve God. But when he yielded to Christ, he was separated of the gospel and his ministry, he says here in verse 1. Separated of the gospel of God. And his zeal was just as passionate. His zeal was just as, uh, as uh, uh, zealous as it was when he was a Pharisee. The difference now was that he was actually serving God for the right reasons. And now he is separated under the gospel. He's set apart by Almighty God for the gospel ministry. And of course the gospel here simply means the good news. It's the message that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and that he rose again, and now is able to save all who will trust in him. As 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us. Let's go there, please. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 1. More of the brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, the Gospel. It's interesting to look at the description that Paul gives to the Gospel here in Romans. In Romans 1.1 he says it's the Gospel of God because it originates with God. You know, the Gospel was not an invention of men. You and I are not smart enough to come up with such a plan for salvation. And even if you and I were smart enough to come with up such a plan of salvation, you and I do not have the means by which to provide that means of salvation. This was the gospel of God. God planned it before the foundation of the world. It's all of God. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he calls it the gospel of Christ. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the gospel of Christ. And the reason why he calls it that is because it centers in Christ, the Savior. It's God's gospel because it originates with God. He planned it before the foundation of the world. It's the gospel of Christ because he made it happen. He's the one who left heaven's glory. He's the one who died upon the cross of Calvary so that we could have eternal life. He's the one that brought it to pass. Look in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, For God is my witness whom I serve with the Spirit in the gospel of his Son, and without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He calls it the gospel of, uh, uh, his, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, now the gospel of his Son. For God is my witness whom I serve and with my spirit of the gospel of his Son. 
which indicates that Jesus Christ is God. He's declaring to you and I that this gospel which God uh, planned, which Christ initiated, was able to be initiated by Christ because who Christ is, he is the Son of God. And then go to Romans chapter 16, please. Romans chapter 16. And verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest by the scriptures and the, of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. He says, my gospel and by this, he's declaring that his special emphasis given in his ministry to preach unto the Gentiles was none other than the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is my gospel, the same gospel as God's gospel, the same gospel that is Jesus Christ's gospel, the same gospel that came about by the Son of God is his gospel. It's the very same message, the message that was delivered unto the saints is the message that he delivers is the same gospel. That gospel he preaches unto the Gentiles is the simple gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There was not some special message, some special truth he taught the Gentiles that he didn't teach the Jews. It's the same gospel. It was his gospel. In Romans chapter 1, we find something about this gospel. We learn that this gospel was not a new message in verse 2, which he promised before by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was promised previously by the prophets. You know, this, state, this is a statement of inspiration here. Paul's saying the gospel, the things I'm about to tell you in Romans, are not new. I'm not going to tell you any new truth. I'm not going to tell you anything... Anything that you've never heard before, I'm going to tell you something that the prophets have preached about in days gone by. I'm going to preach to you about the prophecies of God. I'm going to preach to you the truth of God. I'm going to give to you divine revelation. Because God, through the prophets, has given the gospel. And he gave that in the Holy Scriptures. They were given by divine revelation. And so this is an old promise. This message he's about to preach is an old truth. You know, it was promised in the Old Testament beginning way back in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 15, where God promised that he would send to the seed of the woman, one who would come who would crush the head of Satan. This gospel message that Paul's going to preach in, uh, to the Gentiles, and he's going to preach to the book of Romans, is not a new message. This is an old message. This is a message that was pro proclaimed back right there at the beginning when man sinned. God said, I'm going to provide a savior. The prophet Isaiah certainly preached the gospel in passages such as Isaiah 118, where he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Or Isaiah 53, you know, where he talks about the fact that you and I have all gone astray and, uh, and turned everyone to his own way, but 
uh, God has sent his son and laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Or Isaiah 55, where he talks about the gospel again. The prophets proclaim this gospel. This is not a new message. Nothing new about what Paul's going to present. He's going to present it to us systematically. He's going to present it to us in a way that we've probably never seen in one place before. But what he's about to preach, the gospel he's about to preach, is not some new message. It's an old truth. And the salvation we enjoy today was promised by the prophets. Though they didn't fully understand it, they were preaching it. Go with me to First Peter. Chapter 1, please. First Peter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1, and verse 10. It says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, the Old Testament prophets didn't fully understand the message they were presenting, but they presented it. It's not, an old, not a new message, it's an old message. Something else he tells about this gospel message is that Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel message. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is made of the flesh, uh, sorry, made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of his holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is the center of our gospel message. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that which was preached of old was the message of Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel I'm going to preach is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you thought, think about this for a second. I thought about this this week. You know, what Paul is telling us here is what he's going to give us in Romans is simply the ABCs of the Christian faith. And yet we just declared that the book of Romans is the, Ever is the Mount Kosciuszko of the Word of God, the Everest of the Word of God. Here is this book that speaks about justification by faith. It's the book that changed the lives of men like Martin Luther and, and, and Charles uh, Wesley that we talked about last week. There is this book that's so unique in, in, its, in its structure, and yet Paul says, all I'm going to tell you is the ABCs of the Christian faith. I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. You see, it's important, because that's the foundation of our salvation, isn't it? I mean, after all, the gospel is about Jesus Christ, isn't it? You know, we must preach Christ. Any message of salvation that's not centered in Jesus Christ is not the gospel message of God. So it shouldn't surprise that Paul says at the beginning of this book, the message I am about to deliver to you, that I've been separated under the gospel of God, that gospel that was preached of old by the prophets in the Old Testament is about the Son of of God concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord I'm simply going to reveal to you Jesus Christ our Lord the gospel is about Christ Paul then identifies him this one who is Jesus Christ as a man a Jew 
and the Son of God. Look at the rest of verse 3 and verse 4. Which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And to declare the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus has both human origin, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and eternal existence declared to be the Son of God. The evidence of his humanity is his birth. The evidence of his deity is his resurrection from the dead. So here at the very beginning of this book, Paul declares that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He's a Jew. He's of the seed of David. He is of mankind. He's of the flesh. But he's also the son of God, and that's proven by his resurrection. His virgin birth shows us his humanity and his sinless character. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us his divine power. Because he rose from the dead, we know that he is indeed the Son of God. In fact, he rose from the dead by his own power. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it again in John 2.19. You know, every other resurrection in the word of God, somebody else speaks to the one that's dead and the one that's dead is raised back to life by the power of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ said, you put me in the grave and I will rise again. He is indeed God. It says here that he's declared, in verse 4, declared to be the Son of God. The word declared is the ancient Greek word which can't, where, where, sorry, the ancient Greek word comes from the idea to bound, to define, to determine a limit. It's actually the Greek word from which we get the English word horizon. That line that we see that separates the earth from the, the heavens, that farthest visible part of the earth in reference to the heavens. And here when he talks about declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, he uses this word horizon to signify that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead makes it absolutely clear, absolutely sure, there is no question about it, Jesus Christ is God and therefore is able to save. When you look out and you look at the evidences about whether Jesus Christ is able to be the Savior, then the evidence says he is because as you look, the farthest you look, the only thing you can see is Christ. He's the horizon. He is the image that we see. He's the one. He is indeed who he says he is. And as we look at the facts, he is God. And as perfect God-man, he could die in our place for our salvation. The gospel is founded in these facts. It's founded in the resurrection and the declaration of his humanity. He is the God-man. He is placed, perfectly placed for our salvation. He is one of us. He was born of a virgin. He was a man. But he is God. He's sinless. He's holy. He is able to meet the righteous demands of a holy God. And as the God-man, he could die for you and I and purchase our redemption. 
born of a virgin in the family of David, which gave him the right to David's throne, made him the Messiah. He died for our sins, was raised again from the dead, which is a demonstration of his deity and his right to claim that he is God. It is these miraculous events, his virgin birth and his substitutionary death and resurrection from the dead that constitutes the gospel. And it was this gospel that Paul preached. Beloved, we're ambassadors for Christ. And our message is the gospel of God. We have the same message that Paul had. We have the same message that the prophets preached. And as Paul says he was separated under the gospel of God, you and I have been separated under the gospel of God. You and I have been separated as his ambassadors to proclaim the message of salvation. This isn't a gospel made up by men. We're simply messengers of God's gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciled the world unto himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You and I being given the ministry and the word of reconciliation, and you and I are to go forth as ambassadors of God with that message of reconciliation, standing in Christ's stead, proclaiming the gospel, because Christ died. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may be declared the righteous of God in him. That's the message that we take forth. The gospel of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, died on Calvary to provide salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might indeed be declared righteous in him. And you and I are ambassadors separated under the gospel to proclaim God's word. And when you and I go forth with the gospel, you and I go forth with authority, the authority of God. It's his message. It's his gospel. And it's the only way of salvation. We may not be apostles in the pure sense of the word, but you and I have been sent forth by authority with a commission to be faithful preachers of the gospel, to be ambassadors for Christ. And therefore, let's look daily for opportunities to fulfill our commission and preach Christ that others may be saved. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this night. We thank you, Father God, for its truth. And we pray, Father God, that you would just help us to fulfill our responsibility as those who are called to a divine commission to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ as ambassador Christ, proclaiming that Christ, the God-man, died for the sins of the world and rose again victorious that they might be saved. Bless, we pray.
Commend your word, we pray, to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>